Just before we get started, everyone, Titus O'Reilly here. You would have heard me saying we have Bizarre Plus, our membership program. If you'd like to join, you get a weekly bonus podcast. You get access to all the past bonus episodes. You get to vote on future episodes. You get early access to live show tickets, a fortnightly newsletter, a members-only chat room, all sorts of stuff. If you've got interest in becoming a Bizarre Plus member, look at the link in the show notes. We'd love to have you on board. It's Sports Bizarre. Get into it. Some of these stories you would say, that cannot be true. I'm fine to us. <laughs> the hunt for the weirdest. This is madness. It's a masterclass in how not to do things. The most airbrained scheme <laughs> I've ever heard Strangest. Oh, wow, you can't make this up. Things are only going to get more bonkers. <laughs> most unbelievable. The most genius thing I've ever heard. You say evil, <laughs> I say brilliant. Stories to ever occur. An unparalleled array of deadbeats. <laughs> a mecca for colourful characters. Characters. In the world of sports. Had a taste for testicle soup. So can I just stop you for a second? Don't it like you've never done this. Sports Bizarre. Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. <laughs> Slept face down with a compass to make sure that his head was pointing north. <laughs> he had so many sixes into the members that they retreat into the bar. I better lie down after that. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's 10 cent beer night at the ball bar. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar with me, Mick Malloy. And as always, doing the heavy lifting over there, it's Titus O'Reilly. How are you, Titus? I'm well. Once again, I'm in the dark. I have no idea. <laughs> Basically, I'm sitting here about to absorb another story. Yes. Uh, from the world of sport. Where are you going? We are going today. It's a recent story. It's 2002. Okay. So relatively recent. It's about a football club called Exeter City. Where's that? Exeter is in Devon, England. So it's down that southwest, Portsmouth is near there, sure. that sort of area. Okay. Right? Small club. Yeah. And what's so bonkers that if it didn't happen, it's one of those ones which we love. It's almost our criteria for a story. You'd call bullshit. You would say this is just someone's made this up yeah. and it's too far-fetched. It's that oh. thing of reality can be way more out there than fiction can be because right. it doesn't worry about being believable. So Exeter City was founded in 1901. They started playing their games at St. James's Park, very tiny. This is a small club and they've always struggled to sustain professional football being in this tiny city. It's about 100,000 people. It's not like a Manchester or an Arsenal or something. It's a tiny club. It bounces around the lower levels of the football league. Sure. In England, you have the football pyramid. The Premier League's the top. Then you've got what are the football leagues, Division 1, 2, 3, and then it goes down to the Football Conference, which has changed its name, the National Conference, which is semi-professional. And if anyone's watched the documentary about Wrexham with Ryan Reynolds, and they're about trying to get out of the football conference into the football leagues, you know, move because you can move up. That's the level. Yeah, so that's sort of the level. In the 90s, they had enormous financial difficulty. They were in real trouble. In November 1904, they almost went out of business and were in administration for two years. So they're in real trouble, but they struggle on because uh-huh. the local town loves them. In 2002, there's a pay television company called ITV Digital, and in England they went broke below the Premier League level. They were showing yeah. all the Division One, Two, Three yeah. sort of ones, right? And suddenly when they went broke, there's no TV money. So a heap of clubs go to the wall in English football. And Exeter were already in trouble and here they are in Division 3, they're down the bottom of that and their position is close to going bankrupt. 
their owner at the time, a local jeweler called Ivor Doble, he was 77. He'd loaned the club 483,000 pounds at the okay. time, so That's half a, a million pounds roughly. Chunk. And they're losing money. Their debts are up to 2 million pounds, which for a club like this is huge and it's looking like they're in real trouble. He's desperate to sell the club. Yeah. So a buyer arrives in the name of a man named John Russell and they'll almost want to sell to anyone, right? So Russell had been the owner at Scarborough from March 1994 to 2000. They were a small club. And when he resigned, they'd been relegated to the conference, so so to semi-professional level, the fifth tier of the league. They were insolvent. They owed credit to $1.25 million. And seven years after he left, Scarborough went bust. So his track record on arrival. (laughs) It's not glowing. It's not glowing. He had also in March 1999 received a 15-month prison sentence, which was suspended for two (laughs) years, after pleading guilty to two counts of obtaining services by deception, a £180,000 higher purchase fraud. What he did is he claimed that he was getting high purchase for a JCB digger and a Bentley car, but they didn't exist. He was just getting the money. The judge said of Russell, this was a fraud in which you took a full part. I'm not convinced you were led into it. Yep. Russell, after leaving Scarborough, was obviously looking for a club to buy. He joined forces with a man named Mike Lewis. Now, Lewis had been Tottenham and Readings in their commercial departments. He'd become managing director at Swansea City in 2001. And there it was, in his own words, his end of his tenure, which was very brief there, was a complete disaster. Uh, They were financially in trouble. The owners wanted out, so they sold it to Lewis for one pound, the club. He then immediately sold it to a guy called Tony Petty, who was an English expat living in Australia. Petty's first move was to try to fire seven players (laughs) and Petty became so hated and many blamed Lewis for selling it to him that Lewis feared for his safety in Swansea and had to get out of there. So Russell and Lewis meet each other and they start to look for buying another club. And at the time, with them all going to the wall, there were lots of clubs willing to sell. What's their motive for buying the club? It's not like there's yeah. a lot of blue sky here. Why? I think they the foolishly motivation? think they love being involved in football yeah. and they foolishly think they can turn clubs around. Yeah. And there's probably an element here where they're up to some things that are not kosher, <laughs> okay. which will come to the fore. Um, the idea would be Russell would be the money man and do all the commercial contacts and all that, and Lewis would be the footballing knowledge guy. Football manager. Yeah, so Russell would become chairman and Lewis would be vice chairman. Right. So they first talked to Lincoln City, who are very poor, and they're owned by the Club Supporter Trust, so the club supporters have bought it. This is exactly what happened in Wrexham when Ryan Reynolds came and bought it. The Club Supporter Trust rejects them. They look at their history and go, No. We're desperate. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. We'll We're take our chances. We'll take our chances. So then their eyes turn to Exeter and Ivor Doble, who's the chairman and majority open, he's desperate, so he does a deal with them. We don't know the full extent of this deal, but it seems to be that they're going to pay. Russell sells it to him as, I'm a money man, i got funds to inject into the club. So I own a bunch of things, I've got money, right. so I'll come in and resurrect this club. So suddenly Russell's chairman, Lewis's vice chairman, they own Exeter City. They get their feet under the table for five months and their first major act is they announce that Yuri Geller will be becoming the co-chairman. 
Oh, my God. <laughs> Hang on. Yuri Geller, the guy who Ben Spoons. Yeah. We'll get into who he they is for those that don't Are you know. kidding me? That's, That's their, their like... get-out-of-jail plan of attack. Yeah. Yuri Geller's coming on board. Yeah. So wow. Yuri Geller was born in 1946 in Tel Aviv, Israel. Banned in a spoon. Exactly. He's a dual Israeli-British citizenship and spends a lot of time living in Britain. So that's why he's sort of got a connection to knowing about football. Now, he became famous, and I, this is for the people that don't remember, because I think he was huge in the 70s and 80s and then less so since. I mean, pe- yeah. some people would know him really well and others would be a bit, but it's hard to describe how famous he was. He's, yeah. At this time, he was still quite famous because he claimed he was a psychic and he had <laughs> psychic powers like telepathy and uh, psychokinesis, you know, where you can move things with your mind sure. and all this. And unlike most people, he never claimed to be a magician. He always has claimed that it comes from a spiritual power he has, yes. which is a lot of magicians don't like him because they say you can do everything he does with tricks. It's not real. Yeah. But he has always claimed I'm really doing I'm these things. Powers. Yeah. He would go on TV and he became famous in the 70s, especially for bending spoons with his mind. So I've he'd hold seen the spoon, him. you've seen I've that. I've seen him on so many shows. Uh, he would also describe hidden drawings and he would make watches stop, you know. And I remember at the time, even growing up in the 80s, often when he would perform on television, they would experience weird things in their house, you know, clocks would stop running, all this sort of stuff. So there's all this thing about him that he kind of had this aura of right. it was a bit more than... A lot of people always thought he was a fraud, but other people thought, no, there's something to this guy. Mm. In 1973, his big break, weirdly, was he appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yes. Now, Carson had been a bit of a magician in his early years and thought Geller was a complete fraud. Of course he did. So he set up a thing where they got their own spoons and things and wouldn't let Geller's people near them. (laughs) What happens is Geller comes out, thinks he's going to just be interviewed, and and Carson pulls out these spoons and says, I want you to start bending them. Geller is like... People told me you were going to interview me. I, your producer really asked me prepared. 40 questions. I'm not prepared. I'm not ready for this. And Johnny goes, well, I think you should be able to do it. And he said, oh, I don't feel strong. Geller says, I don't feel strong. And he's <laughs> very – and it, what happens is it's a total, total train wreck. Like the, it's just TV where Geller's refusing to do it for minutes on end, which is a long time on yeah, television, absolutely. as you know. And Carson's just sitting Carson's there and he's refusing, to, he refuses to do it. Because Carson, as you know, was the biggest show in America at the time. Like you made your Make broke it on you. Carson, and you are instantly famous overnight. Canonized. Yeah, he goes home to his hotel room, Gallo, and he's like in tears and thinks, "My career is over." What happens, and you don't believe it, is he's immediately booked on the Merv Griffin show, which is Carson's competitor, and all these people start to think. He's not a magician because if he was a magician, he could have done it. Yes. He really does need to psychically prepared for these things and it can't just turn on like a tap, so he must be the real deal. Right. Somebody else worked in his favour. He says, the Johnny Carson show made me and it made me learn that the controversy is good. It doesn't matter if yeah. people don't believe me. It's fine. It actually sure. – because there will be a lot of people that because I'm others talking don't. Talking about me, yeah. yeah. he just swings around. So he begins doing all these things. And by the 80s, he's a millionaire many, many times over and he's doing all sorts of stuff. He's offering his services for $1 million to do dowsing services for mineral companies. So he goes out and finds, <laughs> seriously. Surely mineral companies they're paying are him. falling for that. Yeah. It's like water dividing. Yeah, it's water dividing. Under hypnosis, he claimed he was sent to Earth by extraterrestrials from a spaceship 53,000 light years away. 
He right. later denies that this is all true. Like he says, that was under hypnosis. I don't have control of that. <laughs> and he says, but it is a slight possibility that some of my entities do have extraterrestrial connections. So this is the sort of guy he Depending is. on who he's talking to at the time. Yeah. yeah. In 1982, he was famously asked to investigate the kidnapping of a Hungarian model, Helga Farkas. He goes actually over there. See, this is where it's not fun anymore, is no. it? It goes from bending spoons and can That's you right. do it to playing with people's lives a bit, offering false hope. So he goes there and, like, gets in the energy of the place. Uh, does he? He predicts that she'll be found in good health. She's never been found and she's believed <laughs> to have been murdered. So he's not always right. There's a lot of times he takes credit for things after they've happened and then when he does yeah. predict things in advance, they don't happen. So there's like, you know, you can drive a sure. truck through something. He's claimed that he stopped Big Ben twice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would take a lot of concentration. That's a Big Ben. Big Ben, that's a, yeah. How do you a, do that, do you know? His mind, it's Just all mind power there. for him. How long did that take? Well, it's hard to tell because the clock wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> uh, remember when Kathy Freeman at the Sydney Olympics lit the flames yes. with the Olympic torch and it took a while for one of them to light? Yes. Do you remember there was this awkward delay of there one of the rings? There was an awkward delay, I it. think, yes. He claims he caused that. <laughs> Why did we do that? But he didn't Why tell anyone until after. destroy the Olympics? He didn't say anything until after. Right, like so. This is the thing. Yeah, Uh, this is it. Comes around once every four years. A lot of effort goes into it. Yeah, I know. Kathy Freeman's gets soaking wet. Yeah, and he's like, I did that. I don't think so. Ooh, it's like, oh yeah. (laughs) More recently, he wrote a letter to Theresa May saying he would not allow her to lead Britain out of the EU. So this is for Brexit. The letter said that he felt psychically and very strongly that most Britons were anti-Brexit and promised to stop the process telepathically. He wrote to her, (laughs) I feel physically, psychically and very strongly that most Britain people do not want Brexit. I love you very much, but I will not allow you to leave Britain into Brexit. As much as I admire you, I will stop you telepathically from doing this. And believe me, I am capable of executing it. Before I take this drastic course of action, I appeal to you to stop the process immediately while you still have a chance. (laughs) How did that work out? Yeah, they left. Yeah. He took credit for moving the cargo ship that's stuck in the Suez Canal <laughs> using telepathy. Oh, he's unbelievable. That's the thing I love. It's like oh, like it's after the fact. I'm but exhausted. He... Why? I've just been moving that ship in the <laughs> Suez. Don't bother thanking me, everybody. But at the same time, he was so famous, like, that he owned some of Muhammad Ali's boxing gloves that he got given by him. He owns a football top from Diego Maradona. Dali, the artist... The surreal art, Salvador Dali was his mentor, one of well, his mentors. Because he sees the funny side. Yeah, he sees all. John Lennon once gave him an egg, claiming it was from an extraterrestrial. It's a gold <laughs> egg. So by the time he gets to Exeter, this is the guy <laughs> they're getting. doing at Exeter? <laughs> so, and you got to remember, Exeter is this tiny club. It's not like he's going to Liverpool. It's like, why are you in Exeter is the question everyone has at the time, right? Because it's very Russell's hard. asked him. Russell knew he was an Exeter fan, and we'll get into how he became an Exeter fan. Given his story of powers, I can't believe it. Exeter didn't have a lot more success on the field. The reason he's an Exeter fan is he says the key to it is his son, Daniel. So Yuri's son, Daniel, is an Exeter fan. Geller said his son had been supporting it after his son was drawn to Exeter City when he was 14. Apparently, he said seven years ago we were actually supporting Reading 
and Daniel started pinning up Exeter City posters on the wall. It was paranormal. He had no explanation for it. Just said <laughs> that he changing teams. Just said that he no was, one's ever done that. Just said he was passionately in love with Exeter. Daniel, his son, said it happened almost overnight. It was very bizarre. I was watching a goal highlights program on TV and saw Exeter City, and at that instant felt an attraction to this team, which developed into a passion for the place as well as the club. It felt like my spiritual home. Oh. Geller says, so one day I said, okay, let's go see a game at Exeter. And they first went to see the cathedral. It's a famous cathedral town, Exeter. Yes. And they went to the place where they first hanged the first witches ever in England. So that's one, another claim go. to fame, Exeter. And Yuri says, and Daniel, who had never been Exeter before, knew how to get to these places. Unbelievable. He was also able to navigate his way around town. He knew exactly where to go, even though he'd never been there before in his life. So he's some psychic too. This is Geller. The only explanation is that he has been there in a past life. Okay. So he's, he thinks Daniel lived in Exeter in a past life. Right. All right. So that's why they've got this connection to Exeter. Now in April 1997, this is five years before he becomes chairman, Geller goes to Exeter with his son to watch a game. So they were already fans. Sure. And this is how I think John Russell knew he w- he could ask him to be yeah. co-chair because it was like, who's a famous fan of us? Now, at this point, the club was near the bottom of Division Three. just two games remaining. They were very close to relegation from the Football League down to the Football Conference, the semi-professional level. So Geller shows up and places energy-infused crystals <laughs> behind each of the goals and says this will help with their defence. Yeah. They're playing a team called Chester. It's pouring rain. Chester score five goals to one. <laughs> yeah, but if the crystals weren't there, they would have banged in eight or nine. You know what I mean? Am I right, Yuri? So despite this, five years later, John Russell rings up Yuri and says, would you like to be co-chairman? Yuri jumps at it and his son is made co-vice-chairman. So his son is. Yuri's the chairman with John Russell and, his son is... and Mike Lewis and his son Daniel, who's 21, because he becomes the co-vice chairman. Geller says, you know, I met all the team, pulled out a spoon and said to them, now I am going to bend a spoon for you. It is the only time you'll see it because I will never do it again for you. This is not about spoon bending. If ever I see you in this dressing room, it will be about motivation and inspiration. With all my powers, I can't make you win, but I can make you feel more positive about yourselves and more positive about the team. He said his role at the club would be as a figurehead and he would provide inspiration to the players and fans. I will bring a positive aura. I will meet the fans, inspiring them, telling them how to support the club with their mind, body and spirit. Good Lord. I'm a very positive and optimistic person. If I can drive my feelings to the fans, then only good things can happen. Now, Yuri actually has quite an extensive involvement in football before this, right? Right. At one point in, in, what the, two, in the lead up to the 2002 World Cup, David Beckham broke his metatarsal, which is in his foot. Yuri went on breakfast television. They put up a picture of Beckham's foot on the television and he told everyone watching to touch the TV <laughs> and send healing energy and positivity to the thing. Yeah. Now, they'll hear Geller says that he said, I thought the best way was to show his foot on TV and ask 10 million people to touch it because I believe we are all connected by a spiritual thread. Okay. Shall I tell you what? About 9.9 million people did. How's you got those figures? Because you only know who's watching, right? You know, so that might have been the ratings, but it doesn't mean everyone went and put their hand. <laughs> and when Beckham was asked about it, he laughed and said, you know what? It healed. Now, the thing is, it's probably going to heal anyway, but no. 
He take credit for yeah, that. Who right? knew? He also claims that he ended Newcastle United's jinx, which was called the London Jinx, where they went 29 winless games in the capital. How do you do that? He said, I believe in telepathy, in extrasensory perception. There are sceptics who don't, and that's fine. Controversy is always good. Two separate sources asked me to break the jinx, and it's my opinion that you can unite 60,000 fans to project something positive. I went to Highbury, stood close to the dressing room and concentrated, and that day Newcastle beat Arsenal. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> wow. Geller also claimed he was responsible for Scotland's Gary McAllister missing a crucial penalty kick against England at Euro 96 and meaning England won because he's a British-Israeli resident. Put a hex on it. He said, we were hovering over Wembley in a helicopter and I was listening to the <laughs> match in my headphones. I heard that Scotland had a penalty and as McAllister put the ball down, I said, one, two, three, move. I don't care how sceptical you are, but the ball moved away from his foot and he missed. Oh, I'm sceptical. It was Europe 96 and there were dozens of cameras. You can check the footage. The ball definitely moved. So I want you to believe that I moved the ball. No, you didn't. The hate letters I got from Scotland. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Yuri. Can you hear what we're thinking? Can you tell we're going to beat the group? He's later said, because Scotland hate him so much, that he's claimed credit for convincing their keeper at another match to dive the right way. Oh, so he's back in the good We're even. We're even. You're Is there wel- anything else I can do for you? You're welcome, Scotland. He'd been involved with Reading FC, who was his original team before he right. changed to Exeter. Before Ex- he decided to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he said he helped them avoid relegation by getting the club supporters to look into his eyes and say, win, Reading, win. Reading man- manager Alan Pardew dismissed Geller's role and said, as soon as we get a bit of joy, thanks to all the hard work and efforts of my staff and players, he suddenly comes out of the blue and tries to claim the limelight. So Geller's announced as the co-chairman here of Exeter. All, all going to be fine. Now, there's a guy called Julian Tag, who's a fan of the club. Yes. But has also been involved in the club for 55 years. He started as a ball boy aged 11. He played for the reserves. He coached the academy. He's held roles at various levels on the club and in the board. Uh, he's a fan at this point when it gets announced. And he says, I was listening to the radio and someone said that Yuri Geller and co. involved. All we needed was Coco the Clown to complete the set. <laughs> As an Exeter boy, though, through and through, that hurt. He was right. We were a laughing stock. Yeah. So as much as this was like high profile, real fans Everyone's are going. having a snigger. Yuri Geller's your chairman. Yeah. And claiming to be psychic. Know, uh, that's your plan. That's your plan. That's your plan. Don't worry, everyone. Yuri Geller's on yeah. board. That is the lamest <laughs> in the history of sport. That yeah. is the worst move I've ever heard. Yeah, what I know. are you doing? Well, here's the plan. We're going the psychic route. You know that guy who bends spoons <laughs> on tonight shows. And by 2002, he's going the psychic route. <laughs> yeah, we could have got a good accountant, or we got yeah. instead. At the moment, they're still totally broke. Right, Russell said he's going to inject funds, but they also just need money. They got debt, two million pounds, and all this sort of stuff. Um, Geller wasn't putting in money of his own either. He was like a very much the figurehead. I would have thought he'd been confident. You know, he could have just gone and picked the stock market. And he right. knows what's happening. So anyway, he says he's there to attack tension. And he comes up with an idea. Why don't we hold a fundraising event at the end of the 2001-2002 season? So why don't we hold a fundraising event, big event at the ground. We'll get some stars that I'm friends with to come. We'll put on this performance and we'll make uh, yeah. money. I like it. This is more conventional. They're more conventional. Now, you've got to remember, though, that like 
Exeter's got 100,000 people there. The stadium fits only 10,000 and it's run down and it's not. So this is like. 100,000 people, it's not a lot of big pool to raise money for. No, and and it's you go to London and it's like, I think it's like three hours or more to get there on. You're not going to London or New York or something. What star would travel to do this for a local footy club? Who's up no for one's that heard trip. of it. Exactly. So Geller thinks around, who could I get convinced to come <laughs> here? He says that I've got the perfect person that will get here to come in and front this thing. And this is in 2002, which was the largest pop star in the world at the time, Michael Jackson. <laughs> Stop it. You. Who's <laughs> I'm going, is there a bigger nutbag than Yuri Geller? You can drag in yeah. to this story yeah. and I'm going, I don't think so. Well, I stand corrected. So to give, you, to give you an idea of the size of this task, right, but, this is like, you know, some middle of nowhere town uh-huh. right now going, you know, we need to make a fundraising thing for a club that's dealing in like tens of thousands of dollars, a lot of money to yeah. these clubs, right? We'll get Taylor Swift. <laughs> it is that level of, like, if you want to know how big Michael Jackson was back then. Absolutely. It's like getting Taylor Swift now, yeah. you know, it's that level. Jackson's legacy is so tarnished now. It's hard to put yourself back in the 80s, 90s. It like, was it. Like a lot of people now have only grown up knowing Jackson as, like, accusations of child molestation yes. and all this sort of stuff and a real weirdo and all that sort of stuff. But if you try and remember, no, in the bad tour that he did in the summer and autumn of 1988, he did seven shows at Wembley. He performed in front at the seven shows, 504,000 people, half a million people, a record that's never been broken. Yeah. The level of demand, 1.5 million people applied for tickets so they could have sold Wembley out 20 times in yeah. like an hour. This is how big he was. You know this. It was just yes. absolutely huge. Bigger selling. Audits. like So big that even now people think, look, he's a child monster, but God, some of his music's great. Like they're still torn people, some people You can still over listen it. to the music. <laughs> I know. Maybe not Gary Glitter. <laughs> And Thriller, I think, still is the highest-selling album of all time. Yeah, it's just huge, massive, but it's right up there. So some of the gloss by 2002 when this is happening had started to come off Jackson a bit in that the first claim of sexual abuse arose in 1993. There's a lot of denial and legal things and stuff. So A lot of people had suppression. So it was still huge when this happens. His album Invincible had been released in 2001, October 30. First full-length album in six years. It's the last album of original material ever put out. It still debuted number one in 13 countries and went on to sell 8 million copies worldwide. So even though he wasn't quite at the levels he was in So was that black and white? No, it was even after that. After that. So he was still huge, right? Now, Uri Geller did know Jackson. They had become friends in the 1990s through Harrods and Fulham football club owner Mohammed Al-Fayed. Very caught up with Princess Diana and, you know. Dodie. Uri and... Uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed were friends and Mohammed Al-Fayed was friends with Jackson, so they all met. And Geller starts to become more and more important to Michael in the um, 90s. He helps him with lots of things. Jackson's under a bit of pressure at this time with some claims of child abuse and Geller was a friend who was only positive yeah. and... Sure. Um, a he, safe place to be. Which, yeah. With, uh, Matt Fides, who became Jackson's bodyguard and close friend until he died was introduced by Geller. So Geller was finding him, he found him for Jackson. Yeah. And so he was finding him people, he was becoming part of Jackson's yeah. world. So in 2001 when Geller and his wife Hannah renewed their wedding vows, Jackson's best man at his wedding. So him asking Jackson is not 
a massive stretch, no. right? Geller is that famous and he was connected. So Geller picks up the phone and rings Michael Jackson. Couldn't he, we just do it telepathically? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mate. Save the, Save the, the international dialing costs back then. He said, when I asked him, I did not believe you would react positively. You know, because Jackson's a bit of a shut-in. It's a lot of, you know, there's yeah. a lot of it. Geller said, I called Michael and I said, will you come? He said, I'm doing this little fundraiser. nothing fundraiser for a club you don't even know. And he was surprised when Jackson said, I will come if you bring sick kids from hospital, which now has connotations that make your skin crawl. Jackson also demanded 50% of the money raised would go to children in Africa with HIV. Okay. So suddenly the club's down 50% of whatever (laughs) they raise. That's a fair chunk of coin that's already walking out the door. Geller agrees. He says Michael absolutely will agree to those terms. Geller says the problem was because Michael was doing this as a friend or that, he didn't feel comfortable asking him to sign a contract. <laughs> so there's no contract. It's Jackson's word that yeah, it, I'll I'm come. I'm coming. I'm come. So tickets go on sale and sell out almost immediately. People don't believe it. They think it's going to turn out to be like someone who's a Michael Jackson impersonator. <laughs> yeah, they genuinely think that. Should right? be Yuri Geller in a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A moonwalking Yuri Geller. So Geller's got no certainty Michael will show up and Michael's a strange cat to begin with. No contract but has announced it and tickets are sold. Now Jackson weirdly had gone to one football match in England before this. In April 1999 he attended a second division game for his friend Mohamed Al-Fayed who owned Fulham against Wigan and the home side won 2-0. Jackson had done a lap of honour around the pitch after the match, he said, I'm a soccer fan now. Definitely, I'm addicted. It was so exciting and passionate. The fans were like the people who come to my concerts. They were screaming and shouting and cheering their players on. I loved it. I wanted to jump up and start dancing because I'm used to performing on stage when I hear all that noise. He was later brought into the Fulham dressing room and some of the players thought he was an impersonator <laughs> and others imitated him with uh, poorly executed moonwalks. Jackson said they seemed a really good team with great spirit. Kevin Keegan, who was the coach of Fulham at the time, said he seemed more interested in an old photograph taken in the 1920s where the supporters were all wearing the same hats as he had. (laughs) So it all comes down to is Michael Jackson going to show up? So Friday, June 14th, 2002. The whole future of the club's at stake. Like this is a wild ride. Within six months they've been announced Yuri Geller is your co-chairman and now the king of pop, the largest star in the world, is coming to your little football club. And they all don't really fully believe it's going to happen. I don't know what to believe. Geller's on the phone working all the time to get Jackson to come. Have they sold out? He doesn't have a contract. No, they haven't even sold it out because people don't believe it. (laughs) They've mainly sold. There's about 300 tickets like they could, but people genuinely don't believe it. That's the real problem in promoting it. Finally, on June 14th, 2002 in the morning, Michael Jackson shows up at London's Paddington Station to board a train to go to Exeter. Here we go. It's on. And it's Beatlemania at Paddington Station. Like he barely can get in. It's mayhem. 200 fans get on board the train and they've paid up to £100 for the privilege of being on the same train. Others managed to sneak on because it's so crazy. One fan said, I paid £100 to be on this train and it was worth every penny. No, he didn't come through to see us, but just being on the same train was enough. (laughs) 
<laughs> the train was the same that the Queen had used just weeks before. It was this special train they'd hired. It cost them a fair bit of money. It pulled in Nexus Station later than expected, partly because of the mayhem at the Paddington yes. end. Jackson goes to his hotel before jumping into a white limousine, which was a vintage one that the roof could come down. And he drives his way to St. James's Park. There's 7,000 people in the stadium. Yep. So it's kind of a weird gig, though, because it's only 7,000. 7, you know, yeah. He's used to selling at 20,000 seaters there, you know. Inside the stadium, there's a huge amount of skepticism. Everyone is predicting no one's going to appear or it's going to be a lookalike. No one believed he's actually going to be there. As they wait for him to arrive, two bands perform, a modern dance troupe and a tribal African dance group. So it's not really like... It's a diverse car. But about 4.15pm, this limousine pulls into the actual ground and drives out onto the field. And the roof's off and Michael's got a trademark umbrella. And they go, I think this actually is, actually is Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson How up. exciting. It starts to drive around and the crowd goes nuts. They cannot believe it. They lose their mind. It's like hysteria. The plans for Jackson to drive around the ground, do a lap, wave like he's the queen. But 100 yards down one side, so many people have gone in the car, couldn't move. Jackson dives out of the car and runs to the safety of the stage. Oh, just wow. It's like Beatlemania. Sort that of would frighten Michael. He jumps on and everyone's nervous because he's meant to speak for three minutes and they're all thinking, is this going to spook him? Yeah, and make yeah. him leave. He goes up on stage and he's joined by Geller, who welcomes him. <laughs> soul singer Patty Boulay, who was a famous like UK soul singer. Right. Um, won new faces and stuff like that. Unknown outside the UK. She was there. And magician David Blaine. <laughs> David Blaine? <laughs> oh, he's he's on speak. He, Michael's on stage. He's sort of said, I'll speak for three minutes. But he's so caught up in the event, he loves it. So he gives this speech, and I'm going to read it in full. <laughs> and I'm not going to try and do Michael's voice, but it was in that haltering, soft voice that you can barely hear, but he gives this speech. And I think you're going to really like it. And I think there's messages in this for all. Shall I be writing this down? <laughs> I'll send you the transcript. Hello, everybody. You know, you know. Yeah. Hello to you wonderful people of Exeter, to the great supporters of the Exeter City Footy Club. Welcome to all the great fans that have come from here and far, to all you children. I'm very happy, very happy to be here with you today. Today we come here to support children. We come here to support children with AIDS, to help, to help beyond those who are affected by HIV and AIDS. We help them to build a good future, all of us working together for them, a future without prejudice for these children and their families. We are here to support and help the people of Africa to find a solution in the fight against HIV AIDS and malaria. He <laughs> just adds. Oh, it's so malaria. <laughs> Through education and awareness, we aim at conviction, but we help with cure. We are here to support you, the supporters and players of this great football club. Sadly, sadly, we live in a state of fear. Every day we hear of wars on the news, on the radio and television and the newspaper, always of war. We hear na of nations hurting each other, of neighbours hurting each other, of families hurting each other and the children killing each other. We must learn to live and love each other before it's too late. We have to stop. We have to stop the prejudice. We have to stop the Good hating. Lord. We have to stop the fear in our own neighbours. I would like all of you now to take the hand of the person to the left <laughs> oh, and to the right 
Go ahead right now. I mean it. Don't be shy. Do it. It starts now to the person next to you, to the left and the right. I mean it right now. Go ahead. Don't be shy. Do it. Do it. (laughs) Now tell the person next to you that you care for them. (laughs) Tell them that you care for them. Tell them that you love them. This is what makes the difference. Together, and Michael starts laughing and the audience is screaming, loving this, together we can make a change of the world. Together we can help to stop racism. Together we can help to stop prejudice. We can help the world live without fear. It's our only hope. Without hope we are lost. Somebody in the audience at this point screams out, who's going to win on Saturday? (laughs) And England are playing that Saturday. And Michael doesn't mind and laughs and says, England is going to win. I believe you. I believe you. You know, I know nothing about sports, but I believe you. Thank you all. Thank you, Exeter. I'm very proud and happy to be here. Thank you, Exeter Football Club. Thanks all the wonderful fans. I see Israel. I see Spain. I see countries all (laughs) over the world. I love you. Thank you to all my team and a special thanks to David Blaine the world's greatest, to Paddy Boyan and to the great Yuri Geller and Matt Fides, who's his bodyguard, the man. We thank them and all the other performers. Please join me in giving them a great cheer. But then he says, and most importantly, and at this point balloons are let into the air and he stops the speech and goes, that's beautiful. That's a sign of hope. That's for all the children of the world. I love you and thank you for everything, all my love and God bless. What's going on? At this point, it's time for Michael to leave. Sure. Now, Michael predicted England would win and they did win. So he's got 100% success oh, rate. Got there. that, Yuri. Someone else has yeah. got the gift. Now, at this point, Michael starts to make his way off the stage and back to the car. Yeah. Magician David Blaine tries to carry out some card tricks, but no one's paying him any attention because <laughs> they're all watching Michael. The idea is Michael's going to get in the car and do a circuit. Yeah. But he can't. And they make a beeline for the exit. He's done his three minutes. He's done his three. So in half an hour, he's been. And he's gone. So the event is covered around the world. It's in Sports Illustrated. It's on all the things. And there is this sense that it's a fever dream. Like, did this really? What just happened? Did Michael Jackson just come to Exeter City (laughs) and do this event and give this speech and leave? Not long after his visit, the club announced that Michael Jackson was now a director of the football club. What about David Blaine? (laughs) He was the new accountant. (laughs) Geller asked him, would you be a director? And Michael said, oh, wow, do you realise I know nothing about sport? And Geller said, you don't have to. Geller later said, legally, we now have to send all our financial statements to California. It is funny that we have to mail send mail to Neverland. Um, <laughs> as a director, Jackson was entitled to play a full part in every club boardroom meeting, sure. voting on key decisions and players. Mm-hmm. He never did it. He was also allowed free admission to games and he was able to travel to away matches with the players on the club coach, of which Fantastic. none of it does. The day after Jackson visits, the local paper ran with the headline, It Actually Happened. (laughs) (laughs) Geller next says, I'm going to bring the world champions Brazil to play. Okay. Now, sorry. Yeah. He says, the doors are opening for me. After all, if I could get Michael, why not Brazil? And, you know, there's kind of this thing where you go, well, yeah, he did get Michael Jackson. So it's not as fanciful as it once seemed. Right. Fairly quickly, though, it becomes clear that having Michael Jackson visit for half an hour wasn't the silver bullet for oh, everything that did, ailed the didn't club. Didn't turn the club around. They were performing very badly on the pitch. John Russell, the chairman's next move, is to bring on Paul Gascoigne as a manager, Gazza. Newly retired or is he? Uh, retired for a little bit. 
and they sent a delegation to Newcastle to talk with him and Gazza doesn't show up to the meeting. Can I say, he's just nutty enough to slip in nicely. Oh, yeah. So Gazza's a no because he doesn't show up to the meeting. That falls over. Instead, their season sees them run through four managers and 20 defeats. Yeah. So it becomes, even with Geller's enormous yeah. positive goodwill. We can't get him across the line. He's not having it. They got a Manchester United and former England winger Lee Sharp to come, but he can't stop it. And on the final day of the season, the club are relegated from the Football League for the first time <laughs> in their history after 83 years down to the Football Conference, which is the semi-professional level. Wow. It made Russell the first chairman to steer two clubs out of the Football League, <laughs> which is not great. I can't believe Yuri Geller appointment didn't turn, didn't turn it around. The financial woes of the club are getting worse. The money from Michael Jackson's thing was not a solution. Russell said he and Lewis were working to chip away at the debts, which they'd reduced, they said, from £2 million to £1.7 and they'd invested their own money. Russell, the chairman, says, I'm not exactly Blackburn Rovers' chairman at the time. He was very rich, Jack Walker, but I'm not skint either, if you know what I mean. So he's saying, I, I own things like I'm putting money into the club. Don't yeah. worry. But it turns out over the season goes along that bills are unpaid, creditors were unpaid. Molem, which is a construction company that built two stands for them, was still owed £700,000. Yeah, that's not good. Very quickly, several staff leave, including a guy called Ken Baker, who was the cashier for 17 years, counted all the money when yeah. people bought tickets because this was when people were still using cash. Yes. The club's match day practice was for gate money to be counted by two employees of NatWest Bank and then for it to be handed over to Securor, which was a security company who, well, like Armaguard, would, would take the money to the bank. But shortly after Baker left, Lewis and Russell dispensed with the two bank cashiers and stopped using the security company. And instead, Russell's wife, Gillian, worked full-time and extra. She would count all the cash. Okay. And they would either take it away or leave it in the safe. So suddenly all the money coming in from the ticket sales is sort of Unaccounted for. A really bit unaccounted either. for. No, yeah. Then the Exeter Express and Echo, which is a local paper, reported that neither charity from the Michael Jackson oh, event no. had received any funds. The city council comes out and says, we gave them a charity licence and waived the £4,000 fee to hold this event. Now the club had to come out and announce that they were finally paying it and it had been a problem with cheques had not been drawn up correctly. And Geller says it was a mix-up, but the charity has been paid and are very happy. Mm. But others are not. Seven county court judgments go against the club, totaling £15,000. Nearly £4,000 was owned to Queensway Publishing, who printed the program for the Michael Jackson oh, event. They said, we were approached by John Russell, who said Yuri Geller was his co-chairman. With Geller's name and Michael Jackson appearing, we thought we'd get paid, but we haven't had a penny. We've instructed the bailiffs to come and get the money. Absolute unmitigated disaster. Some fans, including the Supporters Trust, have begun to be concerned about where the club is going. They call in Russell and Lewis to have a discussion. Now, Russell and Lewis see the Supporters Trust as just a a cash cow. You raise money, we take the money. Yeah, sure. And so the Supporters Club is starting to get a bit annoyed about this. So they have this meeting and they don't come away impressed. Five administrative staff are made redundant. One of them, Emma Naden, won a claim for unfair dismissal and the club doesn't even contest it. Russell and Lewis, who said they wouldn't take salaries when they arrived at Exeter, they said, we won't take salaries. We're here to white knights to turn this around. It turns out that um, the club was paying their accommodation and 
general expenses. Right. Now, general expenses becomes such a broad term we'll find out. <laughs> Lewis said he was only drawing legitimate expenses. I can't afford to work for nothing because I didn't get my payoff Swansea because they went broke. I'm drawing enough to keep alive and be able to feed myself. It turns out his daughter, Karen, has joined the club of the administration staff. So they're sacking people. Yeah, they're sacking people, but they've hired yeah. their family to come work at the club. Uh, and his wife's collecting the cash. Yeah. His daughter's now on the administrative in, staff. Yeah. Kids in Africa, no money. Now, Lewis says, our ability is to turn clubs round, he said. We haven't always been successful. <laughs> It means they never had. But yeah. we're doing our best in very difficult circumstances and trying to pay all creditors. We need the right people around, which is why we have changed staff. If anybody out there thinks they can do better, they're welcome to come down with a checkbook. Yuri Gelli comes out and says he has very little to do with the day-to-day running of the club, but I trust John and Mike and they're working very hard. I don't have any concerns at the moment about how the club is being run. In April 2003, the Football Association sends their financial advisory unit down to the club and does a report. And the report comes out and says it's failing to meet its debts and should seek advice from an insolvency practitioner straight away. It recommends that the security form be put back in to handle the money at the gate and it criticised the lack of the regular board meetings. Six directors quit citing the deeply disturbing report. The report concluded the club had a net loss of 312000 for the nine months the end of the March. It owes 120000 in pay, PAYE tax, still owes Mole and Building Company $580,000. The report said that the club had problems accurately recording its attendances, Yes, that its turnstiles didn't work and were faulty, <laughs> so you couldn't even look into it, and that the club often didn't put down the people arriving on corporate or hospitality packages. So they're wondering where's that money accounted. Surely you could get the turnstiles moving. <laughs> it's also noted that Russell and Lewis's so-called general expenses includes a waterside flat, <laughs> 10000 paid out in director's expenses, £25,000 in total rents, as well as £33,000 in consultancy fees. Oh, consultancy fees? There is also another heading in their books, says other expenses which are not broken down at all, which amounts to £300,000. <laughs> oh, wow. Lewis and Russell come out fighting, saying the FA report only raised a few minor issues and they were glad to see the back of five of the six former directors. Lewis said that, that while the club was technically insolvent, he was fighting on. Good on him. What a trooper. Lewis had said he and Russell had previously taken some advice from insolvency practitioners already. The advisors asked us if we realised we were trading insolvently and we said, of course we did, which you're legally not allowed totally. to do, but they just say this. They were also reminded of us our duties as directors and set out the options we could follow, but we're battling on. 16 players are out of contract at the end of the season and we will only resign half of them, reducing the squad to 18 next season. We can turn it around. This is a debacle. Yuri Geller picks up the phone and rings a journalist, John Stewart, who's local, and he's fuming and he says... I'm sick of Russell. He's had a massive falling out with him. Okay. And he says, I can't tell you what's going on, but I'm furious about it. And he's so angry, he says, I totally and utterly disassociate myself from John Russell and Mike Lewis. I'm a huge fan of Exeter City Football Club and so is my son Daniel. I have a burning love for the club and I would never abandon Exeter City Football Club until the day I die. Whether I'm banned from the boardroom, we shall have to see, but I totally disassociate myself from John Russell and Mike Lewis. I won't comment on why, but time will tell. 
Now he knows the future, remember? Well, that's right. <laughs> Admit all this chaos, the Exeter City Supporters Trust are working behind the scenes. They start investigating the club's book. Yes. Their purpose was to support the club. They changed their reason for existing to buying the club. They can do a better job. Well, and they've got to step in. Yeah. On the night of May 13, 2003, members of the trust, they're now certain Russell and Lewis were damaging the club, placed padlocks on the main door leading to all the offices so Russell and Lewis can't get in, physically locked them out of the club. It turns out they didn't really need to do this because the next morning, unbeknownst to the supporters, Russell, Lewis and Russell's wife, Gillian, are arrested after complaints of alleged financial irregularities at the club. One of the people that rang the police was Yuri Geller. Hoy, okay. Yuri knows a fraudster when he sees them. <laughs> he won't stand for it. <laughs> Russell comes out and says, I am absolutely appalled at various people's disgusting attitude to myself and the family who are trying to save this club. Believe you me, we're innocent and we will prove it. It would take four years for them to have their day in court. They would have faced court in Bristol because it was decided it was too hostile in Exeter <laughs> wow. for them to think. Both plead guilty to fraud. There you go. Gillian escapes after pleading guilty but is, she basically let off. Sentencing Russell, the judge said, you've betrayed the club's fans. You wanted to be the club's financial saviour or white knight even though you knew that that was quite impossible. The deception could be seen when you sent personal guarantees knowing you did not have the financial means to meet them. So what had happened is Russell claimed to own a hotel, property and businesses, but he was actually broke. The prosecutor said he was broke, he had no assets, had no, no money and no bank account and certainly had no money to invest. So the only reason they got sold it was because of that. And they'd continued trading and while insolvent while paying themselves generous consultancy fees Jeez. despite knowing this. They moved money from accounts to buy times, checks bounced, money earmarked for the club's academy was illegally transferred and they left the club 4.5 million pounds in debt. Russell admitted that by September 2002 he realised the club was insolvent and was trading illegally. Lewis said he didn't know until March 2003. Russell is jailed for 21 months. Lewis so is sentenced to 200 hours community work. Oh, wow. Now, what is wrong? Russell and Lewis's year in control left a trail of creditors, local and national businesses. That's terrible. The ambulance service, electricity, water and phone companies. They owed £450,000 to tax. VAT, another tax, they owed £66,000. They owed money to the local university. They owed 13000 to the Devon and Cornwall police for match duties. So it's no wonder the police, when they were tipped off, were quite happy to go and arrest them. To, to arrest them, yeah. free of charge. Apparently the only creditor that they really paid back in all this time was Russell's wife, Gillian. <laughs> now the true extent of just how much Russell and Lewis extracted from the club is really never going to be known because the financial records were so inadequately kept. So even yeah. now they don't know. So the club is broke. Yep. He's got no money, no owner. The shares revert back to the jeweller who had originally owned it, but really he doesn't want to own yep. it. And this is where the Exeter City Supporters Trust step in. The trust chair, Ian Huxham, its chief executive, Terry Pavey, and trust member Julian Tagg, who I mentioned earlier, who yes. said it was all a circus, they're given 28 days to do due diligence and see if they can turn it around. He said it was like a zoo. David Blaine was doing card tricks that they never paid for, so they never paid him. 
We yes. picked up the bill from two of the three or three hotels which were never paid for all the people that came for yep. the Jackson thing. The bill for the train that Jackson got from London hadn't been paid for. This is a just carnage. In a lunch break, a bunch of them go down and they buy the club from the local jeweller. And then they look at each other and go, what have we done? They become the first fan club in England. So they enter voluntary agreement to sort of get it out and they go around and they basically get all the creditors to agree to take cents on the dollar. Sure. It's all volunteers running it now. Yeah. A guy called Barry Sansom worked 80 days straight unpaid to ensure that the stadium met its safety requirements and was told to stop before he burned himself out. So they're just on their knees. Yeah. And then they draw Manchester United in the FA Cup. Oh, here we go. Exeter can't believe it. The biggest team in the land. This is when Manchester United were at the top of their form. Rooney, Ronaldo, Absolutely. all these guys were playing there. They are suddenly almost broke non-league side are going up against the biggest. Coaches and double-decker bus go there to Old Trafford. They play and United don't play their best side because it's… Yeah, fate of complete. Fate of complete. It's a nil-all draw. And Alan Smith, one of United midfielder, actually goes on to Exeter coach and congratulates them after the game. Yes. And the second leg is huge. United have to win to stay in the cup and it's televised on BBC, which means it's a huge influx of money. Money for, for the home club. They find out through a former scout at Manchester United that all the big players are on the bus coming to Exeter and yes. are going to play. Going so. To play. Wayne Rooney, Cristiano Ronaldo, Paul Scholes, Gary Neville and Ryan Giggs Sheesh. all started. It's thrown live. In the first half, right back Scott Hiley, who plays for Exeter, nutmegs Ronaldo. <laughs> <laughs> he said later, it seemed like I ruined his career, didn't I? If that hadn't happened, he might have gone on to be a good player. <laughs> Ronaldo scores moments later, as does Rooney, and United escape embarrassment with a 2-0 win. But the two games mean Exeter makes one million pound and it wipes out all their debts. Fantastic. Overnight. Tag says we went from owing money to having no money. They went yeah, owing, but, but they still, weren't. We're back. Jackson goes on after this and his life's never the same. He authorized Martin Bashir to make a documentary, which is a disaster and leads to charges against him. Yes. The person who introduced him to Bashir and convinced him to do the doco was Yuri Geller. Was Yuri oh Geller. my God. They fall out. Jackson never forgives Geller ever again. Jackson, it's discovered after his death, his lawyer has a, a document. Jackson kept an enemies list and Geller was on it. <laughs> Jackson passes away in 2009. It's not the end of his involvement in English football. Mohammed Al-Fayed in 2011, the owner of Fulham, unveils the statue of the King of Pop at Craven Cottage, the home of Fulham. Yeah. Not every supporter approved of the statue. I this wouldn't is have where, so. Yeah, no, it's slightly controversial. Al-Fayed said, if some stupid fans don't understand and appreciate such a gift, they can go to hell. It was removed two and a half years later because it was so silly and Al-Fayed blamed Fulham's relegation on the absence of Jackson outside the ground. He said, the statue was a charm and we removed the luck from the club oh and now we have to pay the price. Geller went on to buy an island called Lamb Island off Scotland for £30,000 in 2009, convinced it harboured secret ancient Egyptian treasure. And it's an uninhabited island. No one's allowed to live on it. And its only inhabitants are puffins, other seabirds and a solitary rat. (laughs) (laughs) He declares he's going to put a football team on on it, even though no one can live there. And 
It's going to be a micro nation. It's going to break away from Scotland, have its own anthem and old flag, and he's going to take the team to the World, World Cup. <laughs> this was back in 2012. You Google this and there's nothing about it. Exeter now, after five years in the non-leagues mm. and under the ownership of the trust, they return to the football leagues and are currently in League One. So it's two below but yep. much higher than they were. Their academy that they invest a lot of money in has produced countless great players who they've sold on and made a lot of money. It is still run by the Exodus Supporters Trust that now has 3,600 members, each of whom pay a minimum of £24 a year. And they are thrifty. They never spend what they don't have. They are oh. the model of a successful mid-level no football team. No telepathy. And they have turned this club around single-handedly since mm. these days. The locks that the fans use to keep John Russell and Michael Lewis out of St. James Park are still there as a symbol and reminder of the Exodus supporters-led uprising that saved the club and has kept them going ever since. What a wild ride. But that said, they did get Michael Jackson to the <laughs> ground with David Blaine and Yuri Geller. How that was ever going to save a football club. It's it's a bit of smoke and mirrors. It's a bit of fun. It's a bit of this, but you know, yeah. they are horrific. Uh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> it's just <laughs> They've got some famous um, fans. So, you know, Adrian Edmondson, you know, oh, Vivian yeah, from the Young late, Ones late and Adrian Chris Edmondson. Martin, Joss Stone. These oh, people are all well, fans of Exeter. So it's quite a well-known one. What a bizarre episode. What were the chances of that happening? Yuri Geller's one thing and would have made the story, but you had uh, Michael he, Jackson. And he's turned up on a train. Done a lap. It's got fraud. Got Michael everyone Jackson. holding hands. I think after this, you and I will go hold hands and think positive thoughts for the world. Let's do it right now. <laughs> Thank you once again, Titus O'Reilly. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. We've got plenty more to come, but if you want more, you can become a Bizarre Plus member. It's our membership program where you get a weekly bonus podcast you get access to all the past episodes. You also get a behind-the-scenes newsletter every fortnight. You get access to our members-only chat room. And the thing I like is if we're doing live shows and coming to your town, you get access to tickets before anyone else. If you're interested, the link is in the show notes.